0: seated. Would you take your Bible, if you have it, with you and open and find the book of Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. I'm really glad to be back this morning. I feel like I have been away so much the last few weeks. I appreciate all of you being patient with my absence the last few weeks with the Southern Baptist Convention and then with COVID and then uh, vacation. I feel like Greg he has uh, been here more than I have. He did such a good job in the weeks that he taught. I I hope if you were not here, you will consult our podcast and listen to his teaching. I'm really appreciative for him for that. Y'all need to pray for him, by the way. He he uh, since we're talking about him, he had a pretty extensive knee surgery this week. And uh, and uh, yeah, he said he told me he said I'm just going to get my knee cleaned out. Well, cleaned out meant Replaces ACL, stitches meniscus, clean out a bunch of stuff. So he got a long road ahead of him. Pray for him. We're picking up where he left off. And again, our passage this morning we're having to move it a pretty good clip through Exodus to get it done in the in the summer. So we're we're covering chapters 19 to 24 this morning. No way we can read all that. So we're going to read just a representative passage, which will be a portion of chapter 20, um, in just a second this section chapter 19 to 24 is a very significant section of the book of exodus a very important section in the whole storyline of scripture as a whole um it's significant for our understanding of the character of god it's 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 significant for our understanding of the gospel and 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 why we need the gospel why we need jesus and also what jesus came to do and 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 uh in order to earn the salvation for all who put their faith in Him. It, this passage is going to relay to us the institution of the Mosaic Covenant, the institution of the Law to the people of Israel. There's there is so much for us to to think about. If you if you've been here for a while, you may re, I don't know how many years ago this was, so you may not have. But there's a few years ago we spent. We're about to read the the Ten Commandments. There's a couple, few years ago I spent the entire summer just in the Ten Commandments. So there is so much you could you could spend in chapters 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24. So we're just going to have to hit some high spots, and I hope you understand that. Um, but like I said, there's a, even doing that, there's a lot to learn. So to begin, let's read Exodus 20. We'll read verses 1 through 21. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord God. visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments you shall not take the name of the lord your god in vain for the lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain remember the sabbath day to keep it holy six days shall you labor and do all your work but the seventh day is a sabbath to the lord your god on it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your livestock, or, so, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land and that the Lord, that the Lord your God is giving you. And just to pause there, the Apostle Paul notes in the New Testament, that's the only commandment of these that comes with a promise attached to it, that it may go well with you. Verse 13, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us. Lord God, this passage and every other we will consider this morning is your holy, inspired, inerrant, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word to us. And because it is that, we ask that you would give us eyes to see the truth in these words lord would you give us minds to understand the truth that we will consider in these pages would you please give us hearts to embrace and love and find eternally and maximally important what we see here would you give us wills to obey all that you admonish us to do in these words. Lord, would you please give us all ears to hear, and Lord, I personally ask that you would give me the help that I need to teach this word, your word, this morning. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> okay, like I said, there is there's a lot here. Uh, there is far more than we could... Adequately, I think, or even superficially, cover in one morning if we try to get everything. So, <clears throat> what I've done is try to to key on three um, three major emphases found in these chapters. I hope I, I put ahead of time in the group me these chapters that we're going to cover. It. I try to do that in enough time that you can read it before you come. I, I'm a broken record on this. Always look for that. Read it before you come. You will get more out of it. That's true not just in here. That's true for big church as well. Uh, that's why Brother Al, blessing us with his presence this morning, Brother Al always did this. Brian does this, just preaching straight through books of the Bible. So you know wherever you left off last week, that's where you're picking up next week. You can always anticipate what we're going to cover and read it ahead of time. You will get more out of it when you come. But uh, if, if, if if you read it, you'll you'll see where these are coming from. I've tried to key on three major emphases. So if you're taking notes, here's what I'd like us to see. First, I want us to think for a few minutes about the holiness of God. If you were ever, if you're able to read this ahead of time, you will not be able to deny. This is a major, uh, major emphasis in these chapters, the holiness of God. We talk a lot about the holiness of God. I want to make sure that when we talk about the holiness of God, we have a precise understanding of what it is we're talking about as scripture presents the holiness of God to us and it's passages like this one that help us second uh, I told you that the the Mosaic covenant's being instituted here so I want to think about the purpose of that covenant the purpose of the covenant um, this past school year we did a series on the covenants of scripture wasn't it this past school year was it okay feels like a hundred years ago um, but the reason understanding these covenants is important is because in, in the providence of God and inspiring these scriptures, it is, it is those covenants that sort of are the hinges that tie the, the whole storyline of, of scripture together and keep the story moving and progressively teach you something more about the coming gospel and the coming Savior and such that when Jesus arrives on the scene, they should have been able to anticipate and, and recognize Him when He came and know what he was going to do. So we'll spend a little bit of time on how this, this uh, uh, covenant contributes to that, that story. And then thirdly and finally, I want us to see, not surprisingly what I just said, the promise of salvation. Per usual, I want to think about not just this passage, but this passage in relation to the rest of Scripture. How does, how does the rest of Scripture help us to understand what's, what, we're, what we're told here The reason we do that, well, I'll explain it just briefly. I tell you, I've told you so many times that when you're studying a a passage of Scripture on your own, three questions that you need to ask yourself of any passage you come to is, what does this teach me about God? What does it teach me about myself? What does it admonish me to do? Okay, That's true for any passage. But if you're coming to a passage, be it especially Old Testament, but even New Testament and you're just wanting to understand your Bible better and understand the revelation of God in Scripture to you better, then the two things you need to do when you study it, one is just try to understand whatever passage you're in, understand that passage in its own context, in, in its local context. So when I'm reading this, what did Moses mean? Moses wrote this. What, what is Moses trying to tell me? What did, what did this mean for that people in that place at that time um yeah and when i mean at that time this is this is all the revelation from god that they had there was nothing after that so what did it mean then and the second thing you need to do though is back up and then try to understand that same passage in light of the rest of the scriptures the reason you do that is because scripture is not just a human book sure God used human beings to write this book, and it's its meaning is not uh, completely other than what they meant. The meaning of this passage is what what did Moses mean by this but Moses is not the only author uh, this book is God's Word through human authors and 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 they were that Moses was writing as Peter later tells us Moses was writing as he was being carried along by the Holy Spirit and and so to take this passage for example how that impacts our understanding it means that it, it does mean what Moses meant when he wrote it but it means more than that it, it, it doesn't mean something completely other than that but there's more to the story than just what Moses had in mind because ultimately it has God for its author speaking behind and, and 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 through every human author and God inspired the whole canon Uh So while Moses may not have understood everything that, for example, later Luke or the the writer of Hebrews understood, um, our our eternal God, for whom a thousand years are as but yesterday, and who knows the end from the, the beginning, he spoke both. And so, and so, uh, God, when he inspired Moses to write this, already knew what he was going to inspire Luke or the author of Hebrews to write. So they fit together. And there's his intention to take into consideration. So this passage, we're going to try to do a little bit of that. Th- this passage finds importance in the, in the unfolding storyline of Scripture and a parallel passage in Luke's Gospel. So that's the third point, the, 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 um, the promise of salvation. So that's where we're going this morning. Let's think first about what these chapters can teach us about the holiness of God. I hope you've, I hope you've noticed as we've studied through this book that there are so, we're, we're asking ourselves, what does this teach me about God? There are so many attributes of God on display in the book of Exodus. I think the last time I was able to teach you, one of the discussion questions at the end was try to go back through that passage and see how many different attributes of God you can find displayed there um, and, and clearly we have seen attributes of God on display like His, his power, His omnipotence. I mean, you, we saw that in, in, uh, in the battle with Pharaoh and his army and the power to separate the waters of the sea and the people to walk across on dry land and then causing the waters to collapse on Pharaoh's army. We've seen His, in addition to His power, in that His sovereignty, over all things, not just in what he does with the waters, but in all the plagues. And he he can command the gnats and the flies and the frogs and the boils and the livestock and the waters to turn to blood. He can do that. And not just the things of nature, but he can harden Pharaoh's heart. The king's water, Proverbs twenty-one-one, is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Uh, We've seen this, this whole book, this whole episode in history is a, is a testimony to his faithfulness. What he's doing here in this, in this exodus is simply fulfilling a prophecy that he made way a long time ago in Genesis 15 to Abraham. So he's bringing it about here. He's faithful to his word to deliver his people out of slavery. His last week when Greg taught, you saw his mercy on display in addition to his power and sovereignty. His mercy because... Even as the people complained unjustly against the Lord, we have no food, why did you bring us out here? We're thirsty. As if God was not going to provide for them, he mercifully, despite their complaining, provided meat and manna every day for the people to live. I mean, so many different attributes of God on display in Exodus. But without question, when we come to this passage... Our chapters for today, the attribute that it, the, of God that is most clearly on display is His holiness. Now, what do we mean, what does the Bible mean when it talks about God's holiness? When we describe or try to describe what the Bible means by God's holiness, it typically refers to two things. All right, If you're taking notes, here they are. God's holiness. One aspect of God's holiness is His otherness. Otherness, his His separateness from creatures. We talk about the creator-creature distinction. He is distinct from us. He's the creator. We're the creature. That's one aspect of holiness. He is other than us. The second is his moral purity. His sinlessness, his moral perfection. So you've got purity and otherness, purity and distinction. All right, And we see both of those aspects of his holiness in these chapters. His otherness has been on display from, from the get-go. In, in, in the, repeated, uh, the repeated promises, I will get glory over Pharaoh. I will get glory over the Egyptians. I will get glory over Pharaoh's army. He is worthy of that glory because he is distinct and separate and above us. And phrases like we saw back in chapter 14 verse 24, just in little ways. Where you if you're reading the text carefully, you see little just little things like if you looked at 14:24, just Note how it emphasizes this. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces. He he looked down on them. He is is there. They are here. He looked down. Um, Yeah. But we see his otherness, if you come back to our passage, we see his otherness in our passage depicted in another way that we've already seen earlier and that is we see his otherness in how he appears to them like uh he 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 always appears to them in mediated forms they never just see god they see him in a in a mediated in a in a in a in a veiled form uh We've already seen this. You'll recall his famous appearance to Moses, but did he just show up and, and, and Moses see him? No, he saw a burning bush. He saw a burning bush. That's, that's how God appeared to him. Uh, and, and, going, and then later going before and behind the people in a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. That's how he appeared to them. And the, these mediated forms in and of themselves teach us that God is not like us. He is distinct from us, and we see that phenomenon again in our passage for today. If you look in chapter 19, just imagine what you would think about the Lord if you were there in chapter 19, verse 9. The Lord said He would come to them, but how would He come to them in chapter 19, verse 9? He would come to them in a thick cloud. And that comes to fruition just a few verses later in verse 16, where the Lord does appear to them on Mount Sinai in the form of thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. And we heard at the end of chapter, that passage in chapter 20, they were like, Moses, we want to hear you. We don't even want to, we're, we're frightened to even hear the voice of our God, uh, lest we die, right? And there are repeated instructions in chapter 19, not in, like in verse 21, don't look on the Lord. verses 12 and 13 of chapter 19 don't even touch the mountain even in the mediated form in which the the Lord appeared to them so that they were not exposed to His unfiltered glory they were still to set limits not to to cross so they didn't come too near all of all of this just impresses on us and on them that the Lord is holy He's not like us He's not the man upstairs. He's not not like a greater version of us. No. He is other than us. He is unique. He is distinct from us. Well, there's a second aspect that goes along with it in defining the holiness of God. Like I said, it's not just his otherness, but it is his purity. Purity. His purity, his moral purity. And that aspect of, of his holiness is far more clearly emphasized in our passage for today than his otherness. Because part, part of the reason that they were not to look at the Lord or touch the mountain in which he appeared is not just because he's other than us, but because he is so morally perfectly pure and righteous. And we're not. We're so corrupt and sinful. And... and, and And how do we we know that this is the clearest evidence? Because the clearest evidence of his holiness as moral purity in these chapters is is the introduction of the law. Is there so much law? If you read these chapters ahead of time, it's a lot of law. I mean, covering every area of life. And this law is is not uh, just an idea that God came up with. This, this law is not some standard of justice that exists independent of him uh, that God says, yeah, that's good, I'm going to subscribe to that and, and deliver that to you. No, the law that he is revealing here flows out of his own character. It flows out of who he is. It is a reflection of his own moral purity and character. Just think about the Ten Commandments we read. The first, the first table of the Ten Commandments, which is Commandments 1 through 4, dictate our duty toward God, which emphasizes His otherness. The second table of the law, Verses, uh, Commandments 5 through 10, dictate our duty toward other, other people to love our neighbor as ourselves. And in all of the other laws, if you read this, I mean, it, it, it covers everything. We see the holiness and justice and righteousness of god displayed you see the perfect equity of the law allowing for no partiality or favoritism god does not take that into account his his standard is perfect He's like in chapter 21 in chapter 21 verses 23 to 25 you have famously life for life eye for eye tooth for tooth Hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Perfect equity. And the, that, the righteousness of that is, because is, that be, well, that seems severe. Eye for an eye. To us, that seems severe. But the righteousness and equity of that is seen more clearly when you compare it to the unjust tendencies of the nations around them at that time. And that is present in every human heart. You hurt me, I'm going to burn your house down. You hurt me, I'm going to kill your whole family. I mean, you know, that's what was taking place in the nations around them. The moral purity of God, His holiness in that way, requires perfect equity, regardless of who a person is. But the point of this passage for us today is not simply to to behold the purity of God here, but to understand that it imposes obligations on us. It imposes obligations on us. In other words, the law doesn't just reveal the holiness of God, but as the, as the same law will say in the next book in Leviticus many times, after in the, in the middle of a long uh, presentation of law, just periodically it will say, you shall be holy because I'm holy, right? Um, and to consider that, we need to consider the, 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 the purpose of the covenant that is being revealed here. Um, Our passage today, chapters 19 to 24, is sort of bookended uh, by identical phrases that are important here. Um, So if you're looking, just look at it with me. Look in chapter 19, for example. On on the front end, in chapter 19, verse 7, we're told that Moses called all the, the, the elders of the people and set them before them all the words that god had commanded him so he had not yet revealed the law but he had revealed certain things to moses and what do the people do in verse eight all the people answered together and said all that the lord has spoken we will do all that the lord has spoken we will do that was before they heard the law they already knew whatever he says uh it was now incumbent upon them to obey whatever he demanded Right? And now, if you want to turn over to chapter 24 on the tail end of our passage, and this will be after they heard the law. Again, in verse 2, Moses likewise came and told them all the law that had just been revealed. And in verse 3, the people likewise reply, All the words the Lord has spoken, we will do. And again in verse 7, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. Obedient. The people understood that as the Lord conquered their enemy, Pharaoh in Egypt, and delivered them from slavery, he was now their conquering king, and he was now entering into a covenant with them as their conquering king. Hence, in chapter 24, verse 7, this law that he just delivered is called the book of the covenant. The book of the covenant, a covenant of law. And they understood that this covenant of law was requiring of them as the old confessions of faith put it personal perfect and perpetual obedience obedience to that law of god a few a few months ago we looked at this covenant and especially this covenant ceremony that takes place in chapter 24 we see the solemnity of this obligation if you look at what happens in chapter 24 after the deliverance of this law and Moses reads it to the people and they say twice all it says we will do we're going to be obedient we're going to obey we're going to do it there's a there's a there's a covenant ceremony that takes place to solemnize that they sacrificed animals you remember it was very similar to the Abrahamic covenant remember then Abraham they took animals they they sacrificed them, they cut them in half and then you walk through the animals that's kind of gross but similar similar ceremony they instead of but instead of setting the halves of the animals apart they they sacrifice the animals and it's still gross but they take half the blood and 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 put it and throw it on the altar and the other half of the blood they throw it on the people right what does that mean what is that there's the, the same meaning in both of those covenant ceremonies they are basically saying, with the, the blood, both parties of this covenant are taking on obligations. And, and, and on their part, on the people's part, with the blood of the sacrificed animal being on them now, they are saying graphically and symbolically, may I become like this dead animal if I don't uphold my end of the bargain. If I don't do what I just said I will do, I will obey, I will do all the words that you said. If I should fail, this is the curse that I deserve. That's what they're saying in this covenant ceremony. And the purpose, the purpose of this law that he just de- delivered to them is to demonstrate what obedience to God looks like. And that we owe perfect, personal, perpetual obedience to God in every way. And that breaking this law, which is just a reflection of His own character, this, this, the moral aspect of this law, is the Bible says, is written on your own heart. Even if you didn't have this written down for you, you still know it's wrong to steal. You still know that it's, that it's wrong to covet. You know that adultery is wrong. You know it. It's written on your heart. You can't escape it. all right. And, that, and even in Romans chapter 1, he says Gentiles who do not have the law, they know that the people who do such things deserve to die. But that they don't only really do them, but they encourage other people to do them anyway. So the, power, the law really has power to do two things to us. One, it has the power to teach us. We've already been talking about that. to teach us the holiness of God. We saw that in the first point. It teaches us about God and what we owe to Him. It teaches us that. That's one thing that the law does. It teaches us. And that's why you should never ignore the law. Even as a Christian, you should come back to the law and, and not, not say, well, I can never wear blended fabric or I, I have to, you know... These sacrifices. some of the things have fallen away, but the moral, the moral aspect of this law is, is in perpetuity because God's character doesn't change. And you should still come back to this moral law and say, what does obedience look like? What does God's character look like? Let it teach you, even as a Christian. But the only other power that it has, other than to teach you, is to condemn you. Is to condemn you. Because we can't keep it. Romans 8 is so honest about our sinful nature that it says the reason we can't keep it is we don't want to keep it. We don't want to. And hence the truth is, all of us have broken the moral law in this covenant, and we're all deserving of its consequences. The law can show us the right way to go, but it can't make us go the right way. Right? In Romans 7, 7, Paul said, he wouldn't have known... uh, that it, that it was wrong to covet. But the law in the, in the Scriptures and, and on his heart says, don't covet. In Romans 8.3, he says that while the law is good in every way to teach you the perfect righteousness, it is, it is weakened by the flesh because we can't keep it. So we see right here in Exodus, they are promising in chapter 24, we, they already did it back in chapter 19, but, but twice in the span of four verses, in Exodus 24 they say we'll obey we'll obey all of it but but they don't the next thing you find them doing in chapter 32 is he <laughs> is uh, is worshiping a golden calf and doing the very thing that in the first and second Commandments of the Ten Commandments he told them not to do when a sinner stands before God God will measure that person against his law because that law is a perfect distillation of his own holy and righteous character And he will expect that person, every person, to have obeyed all of it, disobeyed none of it. The law is unflinching. It is. The problem is that for me and for you and for everybody is that the reverse is true. I've broken all of it. I mean, James even says if you break one of it, you're guilty of all of it. And, I, and, and we genuinely deserve all the consequences that come with it. You only need to break one law to become a lawbreaker. And, uh, and we've done far worse than that. The law will not help me in the day that I stand before God because I have, I have broken it again and again and again, sins of commission, sins of omission. The law, it teaches me, it condemns me, and in condemning me, it sends me looking for help. That's what it does. It sends me looking for help. So, so to put it a different way, taking into account the rest of Scripture, the law has the power to show us how much we need Jesus. And that's exactly what the Bible says in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul says in Galatians three twenty four. So the law was put in charge. This law in this passage today was put in charge to lead us to Christ so that we might be justified by faith it leads us to Christ because we realize that he's the only one as the rest of scripture tells us who perfectly kept the law of God and he took on himself the curse that we deserve because we have not so that we can stand forgiven and righteous before him and so we need to think about this passage quickly before we come to a close about what this can teach us in light of the rest of what we see in scripture Um, and how it leads us to the gospel so think with me for just a second before we close about the promise of salvation there are a couple of ways that this passage uh, points us forward to the salvation coming in Christ um, you have to do- you can't see it all just in this but when you take this and you follow the trail in the rest of the revelation of scripture you see it um, and uh... and for one If you read through this passage, uh, if you started in 19 and and you saw God preparing the people for his word and then you read chapter 20 like we did earlier and the law and you have more laws at the end of chapter 20 and laws in chapter 21, laws in chapter 22, it's just laws, laws, laws. Even the first part of chapter 23, so many laws. And then... Just when you're thoroughly settled in law, 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 you come to the end of chapter 23, and all of a sudden, there's a promise. There's a promise right there at the end of chapter 23. And that promise is the promise from the Lord to the people that He would bring them into the promised land. He promises that. He promi- And in fact, here's what I want you to see here. He promises in verse 20 of chapter 23, He promises in verse 20, 2320, to send an angel before them, to guard them, and to bring them to the place I have prepared. He's going to send an angel. That's something. Uh, here's, where, here's where my mind goes. When I, whenever I see I'm going to send an angel in the Old Testament, I know it can mean two things. It can mean just an angel. But it could also be the angel of the Lord that we see appear many, many times in the Old Testament. The angel of the Lord who clearly is more than just an angel. It's a messenger from God, and it happens to be God himself in a, in a, in a, in a theophany, an Old Testament appearance of God. And when, I know that, and when I know that that's possible, I can't, when he says here, I'm going to send an angel before you who's going to guard you, and he's going, he's going to bring you into that promised land, I start saying, that's some angel. And my mind goes to Joshua, which we studied last summer, and think about Joshua. Uh, Joshua chapter 5 is what I'm thinking about particularly. Um, Right on the cusp of the people of the generation after this one about to take the promised land they had just uh, in, in, in they had just crossed over the Jordan River in the same fashion that the generation before them crossed over the Red Sea And they're just about to have to fight their first fights And all of a sudden and in, in, at the end of Joshua 5 Joshua looks up and there's somebody standing in front of him and It says Joshua lifted up his eyes, and a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And he identified himself as the commander of the army of the Lord. Now, was that just an angel? You might think that until that angel tells Joshua, take your shoes off. Because the ground on which you're standing is holy ground. When's the last time you heard that? The burning bush, right? I believe that in Joshua 5, this commander of the army of the Lord is is the same figure that in other places of the Old Testament is referred to as the angel of the Lord and very perhaps the angel that God was talking about in 23:20, I'm gonna send an angel before you to take you into this land and that's exactly what this commander of the army of the Lord does in Joshua he appears to Joshua in chapter 5 and he's not just popping in just to say hello he's showing up to lead them through those battles and to guard them because what's the what is the first battle after he appears walk around this city of Jericho seven times and it's just going to fall down. Right? They didn't do that. He did that. That's what's going on. But so, so, so this, this passage in 2320 points us forward to Joshua where the angel of the Lord, the commander of the army of the Lord is going to lead them into this promised land with Joshua. And they get there. But then as you keep reading your Old Testament... And that promised land is referred to as God's rest. I'm going to lead you in a place of rest, the promised land. As you, so they're there in Joshua. As you keep reading your Bible, if you turn over to Psalm, Psalm 95, you keep reading generations later in Psalm 95. a great psalm by the way this would be a great psalm if you wanted to start your morning every day just with a psalm psalm 95 is a good one you wake up groggy but then you're met with let's sing to the lord let's make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation let's come into his presence with thanksgiving let's make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise i mean that's just a good that's a good way to start your day but psalm 95 written generations after joshua and the people had come into this promised land, you know. It says in verses, verse six and seven. Let's worship and bow down. Let's kneel before the Lord, our Maker. He's our God. We're the people His pasture. But notice what it said, where it goes in verse, into verse seven and verse eight. Today, today, many generations later, today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah as on the day at Massa in the wilderness. That's, that's what Greg taught you about last week. When your fathers put me to the test, and when you put me to the proof though they had seen my works, for 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. That word today, this promise of rest is still out there. And the, the, the psalmist is saying, today don't harden your heart so that you can enter that rest. The reason I'm pointing that out is because when you come to the New Testament and you're reading the book of Hebrews, you come to Hebrews chapter 4 and it's like the author of Hebrews has been reading Psalm 95. And he, he argues, he's, he's saying, man, if, if, if Joshua entering that promised land was the end of the story, why is Psalm 95 so many years later still talking about a rest that's out there and say don't harden your heart because it's still out there to, to get to. It's not going back to a piece of earth. It's going back to a further promise. It's going ahead to a per- further promise. And the author of Hebrews in chapter 4, we don't have time to go through it all, but you should read it for yourself. Hebrews chapter 4, the author of Hebrews is saying Jesus is the one who leads God's people into God's eternal rest through his death Burial and resurrection from the dead. So here's the, here's the here's the connection, as I see it, in in Exodus twenty three. Ec- that passage promises it promises that inheritance of land in Joshua. And the pre-incarnate Christ led them to that place, but that was just a foreshadow, uh, the, the foreshadow of the eternal rest. That the incarnate Christ would lead all those by faith would enter into through faith in his saving work. I'm just saying that that that, that may have been a belabored point, but I'm just saying if you that's the Bible making that point, point. and if you're going to understand fully Exodus, there's a fly in here. Uh, if there if you want to read Exodus 23 in all its fullness, you got to follow the rabbit trail. As, as the rest of Scripture, God-inspiring human authors to pick up on old pieces and, 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 and lay further ground that's going to lead you to the salvation in Christ. Final point. The, the second way our passage points us forward to Christ and the salvation that He would bring are the parallels that I'm pretty sure we've already seen at some point between the events of Exodus 24 and the events of Jesus' transfiguration in Luke chapter 9. There are so many parallels between Exodus 24 and Luke chapter 9. Um, I'm going to just mention a few. Exodus 24 and Luke 9, they both take place on a mountain. Moses went up on a mountain. Jesus went up on a mountain with Peter, James and John. Remember, what, what, what happened to Jesus when he got there? Yeah, he was transfigured, but what is that? What is it, how did it describe it? It says his, his appearance became dazzling white. Literally, in the Greek it says he became like flashes of lightning. What do you see on the mountain in Exodus 24? Flashes of lightning at the appearance of God. On the Mount of Transfiguration, a cloud descended on them. A cloud was on, the mount, on mount Sinai when God and whereas on Mount Sinai, God delivered his word on tablets of stone to his people, on the Mount of Transfiguration, God spoke again and he said, this is my son whom I love, my chosen one. Listen to him. And, and most pertinently, what were they talking about? If we're to listen to him, what were they talking about? The text in Luke chapter 9 says they were talking about his departure Literally, they were talking about his exodus that he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. So, the events of Exodus 24 are supposed to be in our minds when we come to Luke 9 and go, man, this sounds familiar, and it's pointing me to a greater exodus that Jesus was about to accomplish on the cross. This passage in... Here, we're going to conclude it with this. This passage in Exodus... Lots more than I was able to say this morning. When we see it in light of the rest of Scripture, it is a beautiful testimony to the Gospel. It it begins with a strong reminder of the holiness of God, His otherness, His purity, and it continues with His unflinching standards and law reflecting His own holy character and and the obedience, the perfect obedience that we owe to Him but which we can never give. And so even within this same context, law context, the passage points us in, in more than one way then to the salvation that he would provide to guilty sinners through the work of Christ who don't even deserve it. There's so much more in these chapters than we could, and we could spend weeks. We've already done it in just the Ten Commandments. But um, there's something to be gained. I think, I think it's, it's good to take small chunks of Scripture and dive deep into them. But there's something to be gained, I think, by seeing several chapters at a time in one one setting, because often through that, you see more clearly how the Old Testament was always just a steady stream leading you to Christ and to his gospel. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this word. Thank you so much for your promises. Thank you so much for the gracious gift of your law that even though it beats us down and shows me my guilt, it, 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 it causes me to cry out for a Savior and, and leads me to Jesus. Lord, thank You so much for this, this beautiful gospel and law passage. I pray that even though we don't have time sufficiently to discuss around our tables, Lord, I pray that, that the result of what we have gained this morning is not just the knowledge about our Bible. It's not just seeing interesting tidbits in this and that. I pray that this is just another confirmation that you are holy, I am sinful, but I have a Savior in Jesus Christ. My works will never be enough. I could never earn your favor. The favor we have through faith in Christ is completely earned for us by another. And our standing before you is unshakable. I I hope that's what we walk away with. And I pray that we would continue to go back to this law to always shake ourselves out of whatever pretended self-sufficiency we may think we have. Keep us looking at Christ and His sufficiency. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.